12, episode 10. Please proceed with care. This podcast contains graphic material with tons of references to sex. Welcome to 12 with Sarah Sloan, a podcast series exploring the 12 different ways a woman is apparently able to orgasm. If you are new to 12, I recommend you go back and start at the beginning of the series. This episode is all about the mouthgasm, or oral orgasm. When mentioning the mouthgasm to friends, I felt some people's barriers immediately go up, a response that the mention of anal sex also gets. I totally understand why, but before diving right in, a little context. I'm recording from the UK weeks into isolation. Thank you so much to my loyal listeners who have waited patiently for this episode to appear. The intermission has lasted slightly longer than planned. There's four of us isolating together. My partner of 10 years, referred to here simply as H, and our two children, aged six and three. H has now finished his current contract. Initially, our coping mechanisms included overeating, drinking and listening to way too much news. Pretty standard, I imagine. Since H has stopped working, we have moved into a calmer space, for now, whereby we are spending time cooking, splitting the childcare, working on finding work and working hard on our communication. I got a message yesterday from a friend who is living in Panama and has been in isolation with three children and a busier-than-usual working husband for a lot longer. I am sharing because I suspect her feelings about intimacy at this present moment in time will resonate with lots of you. Hard for either of us to get in the mood when it feels like the apocalypse. I'm just wrecked by the time we finish tidying up and get the kids to bed. She then went on to say that they've banned alcohol in Panama and that she'll be having the one bottle of wine they have left with her husband on their next date night. I appreciate that there will be as many different feelings and reactions to where we find ourselves as there are people listening. Those of you isolating without a partner or with partners with whom intimacy is just not on the cards, good news. The mouthgasm can be achieved solo. For many of you, this pandemic will be taking you away from intimacy and sexual exploration, whereas for others, you might find more time on your hands as you get bored of watching a screen, engaging in social media and the endless news updates. H and I have been trying to find a balance between knowing what is going on and just getting on. Other people will of course be on the front line, with sex and intimacy playing whatever role is needed at this unprecedented time. And for any of you listening, thank you from the bottom of my heart for your commitment and sacrifice. My friend in Panama and her partner have always been good at date nights. H and I have a rolling intention to set these up, having never managed to make them stick. So far, social isolation hasn't changed this, but I live in hope. So what exactly is a mouthgasm and how do you achieve one? I think there are two different areas of focus for the mouthgasm. Firstly, the lips, tongue and mouth, and secondly, the throat. In the West, most people can relate to the first. Lips, tongues and mouths are constantly celebrated for their contribution to the sexy and erotic. 
However, the idea of getting involved with the throat does tend to raise a few eyebrows, as I mentioned earlier. Did you know that research published in the journal American Anthropologist in 2015 found that out of 168 cultures studied, only 46% consider mouth-to-mouth -mouth kissing to be an expression of romantic love? When reading about the alternatives, the one that caught my eye was lovers in the Trobrian Islands near New Guinea who bite off one another's, wait for it, eyelashes during lovemaking. Bet you didn't see that one coming. According to an article in The Guardian about this research, anthropologist Helen Fisher says, and I quote, even in societies in which kissing wasn't done, people patted, licked, rubbed, sucked, nipped and or blew on each other's faces prior to copulation. I love looking backwards in history and to other cultures to remind myself that it has all been done before. It's reassuring somehow. I suspect that a lot of the taboo surrounding the throat orgasm is connected to the fact that for the person performing the act, it is potentially uncomfortable as well as technically difficult to achieve. And for me, having watched the 2013 film about porn actress Linda Lovelace, star of Deep Throat, I can't shift the history of exploitation and abuse linked to the act. But all that might change. I have a friend who has achieved a throat orgasm, so there is hope yet. It seems that the throat orgasm is all about relaxing. But of course, relaxing seems to be Twelve's running theme. For the first time, therefore, this is the tale of two approaches for what I must admit feels like an elusive orgasm. The mouth, lips and tongue, and then the throat. Unsurprisingly, H and I started with the easier of the two. Weirdly, I feel shy about recounting the details of this experience. It feels more intimate than what I have shared with you before, dear listeners. This realisation made me think of Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, refusing to let Richard Gere kiss her on the lips because it felt to her character like such an intimate act. My default position is to make love versus to fuck. Part of 12 is to expand my horizons so that I can safely enter into a space outside of my comfort zone. As I've already shared, I've only ever had one one-night stand, which was a disaster, and a string of longish-term boyfriends. Now I'm married. Back in my late teens, 20s and 30s, lots of my friends were fucking around and it looked like fun, but I just wasn't mentally robust enough to let people into my body without feeling really good about them and me. Rarely did the two coincide. I might sound like a prude, but there you have it. And really, who cares? It takes all sorts. This all relates to the mouthgasm because I'm not a tongue-down-the-throat kind of person usually. Moreover, let's keep this sensual and focus on lips and a bit of tongue action. But I'm glad H and I went for something different. We spent ages exploring each other's lips, using our tongues, and then progressed to focusing predominantly on each other's tongues inside and outside of our mouths. The change in the way that we usually kiss turned us on. What I found unexpectedly sexy was when H totally filled my mouth with his tongue, pushing it deep inside me. 
Being enveloped in this way felt wonderful and I fully submitted, something I now realise I need to do more of. It didn't make me gag or worry me in terms of being able to breathe. There was a lot of exchange of saliva, mainly me receiving H's, but I was up for that and I felt a wave of even more intense pleasure, like a climax, right before he stopped. Honestly, I felt like we had had sex and when he stopped at exactly the right moment, I mean that never happens, right? I was quite blown away by how satisfied and light I felt. The sex that followed was sensational. I'm looking forward to recreating this technically very simple act. I'm beginning to see that the smallest of ideas can create enough change to energise sex with a long-term partner. Let's face it, I can't talk about a mouthgasm without talking about blowjobs. In my experience, blowjobs generate a lot of feeling. They're comic, they're super pleasurable, they're expected or worse, demanded. They're a gift, they're boring, or my favourite from the Tantra tradition, they're a way to open up your throat chakra and connect you to your creative genius. I'm going to be totally candid here. I've opened up to the idea of blowjobs since exploring the mouthgasm. My take before was that I gave blowjobs to turn me on and it was part of foreplay. I didn't give them as a gift in themselves. I even found a sex therapist who explained my initial take on them perfectly. Stephen Snyder, sex therapist talking to The Cut magazine. I have trouble with the idea of giving someone oral sex. The erotic mind is fundamentally selfish. It doesn't really understand the idea of giving. Much better to think of oral sex as a kind of taking. Only do it if you enjoy it, not just to give your partner an orgasm or to hear them moan. If you're not enjoying doing it, then go find some other way to make them moan that you actually like. I understand what Snyder is saying, and I think there are a lot of people who would benefit from hearing his perspective, both men and women alike. But now I also understand what a lovely gift a blowjob is when you're in the mood and want to express your emotional connection and feelings for someone. A gift is in the giving after all, and oral sex can be a wonderfully erotic act. It was following a conversation with a friend who is deeply in touch with her sexuality and always brings a fresh perspective that I realised I was being narrow-minded about blowjobs. And when I stopped to think about it, I realised where my defensiveness was coming from. When friends of mine gave boys they met and liked blowjobs at the age of 14, none of them reported back that it had been much fun. From where I was standing, they were doing it to ingratiate themselves, and it made me feel uncomfortable. Then, when I was 19, with a boy that I didn't particularly like, I got up and left during our first kiss in the back of a car when he asked me for oral sex. I asked my mother what she thought of what had happened and how old I had been when the whole blowjob thing started. She was horrified and explained to me that my friends might as well have been prostitutes giving away pleasure like that. She hammered her point home by pointing out that at least prostitutes got paid. Well, as you can imagine, that left a strong impression. But let's not leave Snyder out in the cold. 
In his book Love Worth Making, he wrote, "It's absolutely crucial that when you go looking for erotic inspiration, that you first look within yourself." This sentence stopped me in my tracks, and I instinctively rushed to the work of Esther Perel. Like Snyder, Perel talks extensively about returning not to sex per se, but to our erotic lives more broadly. The idea being that if you become more mindful, playful, spirited, and joyful, you will become more erotically alive and, in turn, more sexually alive. Anyone who is aware of Perel's work will know this, but let me dig a little deeper. It can't hurt to revisit for those of you who do know her. And hopefully, will be valuable for those who don't. Esther, who is a psychologist born in Belgium, now living in the USA, explains that in our modern Western capitalist societies, we are obsessed with economic growth, and therefore productivity, and that this obsession has significantly reduced eroticism in all our lives. Whereas eroticism used to be a life force, it has now been reduced to the act of sex, and not just sex, but all the outputs of sex. How many orgasms? How many positions? How many times? Esther's description of the erotic lights me up emotionally, energetically, and spiritually. She says. The erotic is a beautiful, radiant interlude that is massively unproductive. It is a state of being. I'm now looking at these two ideas and seeing the work that I'd like to do. The first is to look within myself more to improve my sex life. I imagine this to involve further exploring what I like and what brings me joy. Believe me, I have taken on a lot of responsibility here, but then I look at the second concept of the erotic being massively unproductive, and I see that I potentially have a mindset change to make if I am to truly unlock my sexual potential. I want to feel totally comfortable and confident not being productive. I figure this will involve me disconnecting my sense of self-worth. From my productivity, turning my back on my Western capitalist culture and the mantra that I think sums it up: "I produce, therefore I am." I have no doubt that this has been said before, but I haven't read it anywhere, and am therefore taking it for my own. I know this will chime with many of you, as we sit in quarantine and reflect on how our lives were operating, and what we want to change. When we are set free again, she's off. I know some of you will be thinking, "Enough of this emotionally deep stuff. What about the deep throating? Ah, yes, the second part of the throat orgasm that involves taking a penis deep into your mouth towards the back of your throat." I have one overriding memory of trying for the throat orgasm. And that is the sensation of having H completely fill my mouth, in an excessive way. I can understand why people put in the effort and teach themselves not to gag. That moment was both erotic and arousing. Let's look at the science for those of you who might think this is all a ploy by men to get more fellatio. 
Well, unsurprisingly, there isn't much research to turn to, apart from the brilliant Beverly Whipple and her colleagues who published The Science of Orgasm back in 2007. I mentioned Beverly in episode 8 when talking about mental orgasms. The book explores our understanding of the vagus nerve, the longest nerve connecting multiple parts of the brain and body. It is responsible for stimulating the voice box, upper palate, heart, lungs, digestive system, throat and cervix. This group of scientists embarked on their research after reports that women who had suffered complete spinal cord injuries still felt sexual sensations, with some saying that they could orgasm. Their explanation for this was that their genital orgasms were a result of stimulation of the vagus nerve. So if you can stimulate the vagus nerve in your throat, you arguably can have an orgasm. So where is it and how do you get there? If you're flying solo, you can carry out the following using your fingers to start with and then switching up to a toy. If you're trying this for the first time with a partner, you might want to have a quick exploration using your fingers first. You never know what you might find. Everyone's anatomy is different, so the pleasure point is going to vary. For some women, it is close to the uvula, in the middle of the soft palate. For others, it is deep down on the back of the throat, and for some, it might be further forward. Experts advise using the breath to deep throat to remain as relaxed as possible and not to rush in any way. The idea being that you ease your way in and every time it feels like a strain or you are close to gagging, you stop and take deep breaths right from the stomach, relaxing the gag reflex. And then, only when you are ready, do you carefully work your way slowly in. The idea being that you surrender to the penetration a piece of advice I took to heart when experimenting with deep throating was the importance of it being about what turned me on, following what I was enjoying, supposed to, on this occasion, listening out for the moans and focusing on giving pleasure. I only had a fleeting sense of the arousing side of deep throating. I was very turned on, which is also advised. But despite definitely taking my time and breathing very deeply, I gagged too much for it to be fun. Apart from anything else, the gagging took me out of the moment so that I had to work back up to feeling relaxed and sexy. On a positive note, however, I did find that the saliva deep throating created very helpful for the oral sex I was giving. It was an intimate, fun encounter. Will I try and relive that moment of heightened pleasure whilst deep throating? I think I will, if I'm feeling very relaxed and incredibly horny. But I'm not going to work too hard to get beyond the gag reflex. Before signing off, I'd like to share an account of what a throat orgasm feels like. This is taken from Mariah Freya's great article, The Magic Place at the End of the Rainbow, on bededucated.com. As I started to get super horny, my gag reflex calmed down. My throat expanded and I began yearning for penetration. The intense yearning for penetration turned into an orgasm. As the explosion began in my throat, I was able to direct its energy to the rest of my body. The result? 
a pulsating pussy just begging to be penetrated. I mean, that sounds like fun, right? The next episode is an interesting one, the spot. I love the idea of the spot because it is something you have to discover. It is a spot on your body which is not erogenous, but nonetheless sends you wild. And it will be unique to you. It could be behind your left knee or inside your belly button, for example. Who knows? I hope H and I can find mine. Follow and join the conversation via Instagram at 12 for pleasure. And if you feel so inclined, please rate and review where you listen to your podcasts so more people can understand what it takes to truly honour female sexual pleasure. Thanks for listening.